Hey, Carrie, how is it with your soul today? It is good with my soul. It's uh, January and really cold here, but uh, it is good with my soul. How about you? My body's cold, but my soul is very warm because we're <laughs> we're about to have a wonderful conversation with Buddy Huffaker of the Aldo Leopold Foundation, all about conservationism and environmentalism. So, welcome to the Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer, and I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit between us, and to us and how we live between the words. So our guest today is Buddy Huffaker, a wonderful man whom I know personally, and I just want to take a moment before I introduce you, Buddy, to say welcome to The Growing Edge. Oh, it's an honor and pleasure to be here today, Parker. For those who don't know him, Buddy is has had quite a long career uh, as a worldwide advocate for environmental ethics and conservation. He's executive producer of the Emmy Award-winning documentary Green Fire, Aldo Leopold and a Land Ethic for Our Time, a wonderful movie, and executive director of the Aldo Leopold Foundation. This happens to be the 75th anniversary in 2024 of Aldo Leopold's well-known book, A Sand County Almanac, which was so instrumental in turning us towards the urgent needs and demands of conservation and environmentalism. And Buddy is the primary steward, executive director of a foundation and a center that has been established near Baraboo, Wisconsin, to um, introduce new generations of people to Aldo Leopold's thought and action, and to bring more and more people into this urgent movement to protect our land, to protect the global uh, ecosystem and environment. And we all know that that's a real uphill struggle these days. There's lots and lots I could tell you about Buddy's background, but we'll put more of those details on our on our website. So again, Buddy, welcome to this conversation about Aldo Leopold, the Aldo Leopold Foundation, the San County Almanac, and I'm going to turn to Carrie now for a, a first round of questions for you. So right off the bat, I'd love to ask you just a bit about your own history. Um, you know, how you discovered the Almanac, you know, uh, how you kind of live out some of Leopold's ideas about conservation and landscape um, and relationship to the natural world. Well, thank you for that warm welcome and question, Carrie. Uh, again, it's great to be here. And my own story and journey, I would say, is quite unremarkable, unlike Aldo Leopold's uh, most remarkable impact on our lives and world. I grew up pretty much a suburban kid, more interested in sports than in nature, uh, but I kind of stumbled my way into studying landscape architecture as an undergraduate at Purdue University, and by chance took a Wildlife in America class, and one of the books in it was a Sand County Almanac. And it's kind of fun to honestly admit, my first reading of it, I was actually not that impressed. Mm. Oh. But 
I was, I was thoroughly infatuated with the professor. His name was Dr. Frederick Montag. And in my mind, as he described his own life, he was a modern-day Aldo Leopold. He lived in the country. He was growing his own food. He was thinking about conservation and implementing it at his individual life through education, involved in policy work. And it just kind of got me thinking. And so uh, a few steps here and there, and uh, as I was finishing graduate school, I found myself uh, sitting at a dining room table with Aldo Leopold's daughter, Nina, and her husband, Charles Bradley. And they were ready for a second retirement. They had retired from Montana State University and came back to Wisconsin so that Nina and Charlie could take care of the family Leopold farm outside of Baraboo, Wisconsin. And they've been doing this for a couple of decades now and were ready for their second retirement and recognized they needed some help. And uh, I, I applied. I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to have a summer-long internship. And 27 years later, it's clear they couldn't figure out how to get rid of me. And so um, it's, it's been a real joy. And now every time I read a Sand County Almanac, and I've done it again, uh, getting ready for the 75th anniversary, I, I, I'm, I look back at my younger self and say, wow, look how little you knew, because uh, this book opens up the world in so many different ways. And uh, that's one of the fun things, I think, about great literature is you can come back to it again and again, and, and you're different, the world is different, and, and the writing is the same and yet totally different. And so it's just been a fascinating opportunity to intertwine my own personal life and legacy with that of, of the Leopold families. I now, uh, Parker's been a guest and, and hope he will come back again and again. Uh, at our home, which was built by Nina out of the same trees that her and her family planted in the 30s and 40s on their uh, family farm. And, and so my office was in the basement and I went to work with Aldo's daughter every day for three years and until wow. we kind of grew and then uh, our office had to move to town. And um, there's a lot more to share, but, but that's kind of, you know, it's one of those um, kind of unremarkable journeys until... You stop and look back and say, wow, what an honor to be part of, of helping the world recognize how important everything around us is and decentering ourselves from us uh, to others, other people, other plants, other animals, all the critters and, and uh, the rest of the world that we inhabit this, this great globe with. It, it's a great story and the happy accidents that make up our lives, huh? Give us an idea, buddy. Um, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. As you know, Baraboo, Wisconsin, the town that you're nearest, um, is about an hour north of Madison. So for folks who are listening and who might be in the region, give us an idea. If, if, if I, Today, if we drive up in your direction, tell us about the, the Aldo Leopold Center uh, and the foundation behind it, and also, of course, about the farm that Aldo Leopold purchased back in, what was it? 1935. 1935, and, and that he and his family restored uh, on weekends and during the summer when he was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, a professor of, of land management. So if we were to make that trip, what, what would we see? I know what we'd see, and I know we'd have a wonderful dinner at your house, but... <laughs> 
What else is there for visitors? Well, today you'd see a lot of white because we've uh, got a, a, over a foot of snow. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the fun part of that question, Parker, is to contrast what you'd see today versus what you saw, would have seen in 1935. And so today you'd see a lush landscape of prairie and savanna and woodlands. Uh, the Wisconsin River meanders its way behind this Leopold Shack, which has now kind of become the icon for the land ethic. Uh, and and it was the the river was the selling point for this property that the Leopold family purchased uh, as their opportunity to get outdoors. And um, now we'll have fifteen thousand sandhill cranes come to roost every night. In fact, the last hundreds of them just left about two days ago, uh, right before the storm hit. Uh, but compare that to 1935 when the family would have driven up here from Madison. It was a, a kind of worn out sand farm. There was very little vegetation, very little wildlife. And this was Leopold's interest and in, in challenge was how to take uh, sick land and bring it back to health. He, you have to remember his early career was in the Forest Service out west in some of the wildest, most ecologically intact landscapes uh, that we had then and even still today. And then he, he got transferred to the Midwest and, and now was working and teaching mainly farmers uh, that would go back to the farm after they would get an education to you know care about wildlife. And if so, what could you do to take care of it and improve wildlife habitat on, on the farm? And so that's what he wanted to, he kind of wanted to practice what he preached, if you will. And so they started planting prairie and thousands and thousands of pine trees to bring this land back to health. And so now when you're there, it's, you know, we, we fortunately have these great historical photographs that remind us that of the land's resilience and what can happen when we invest ourselves in taking care of it and, and restoring it. And so uh, that's the really fun part is today it's, it's quite a wild place, but it was not in the 30s. And that's such an amazing story. I mean, an inspiring story. Um, because, you know, Leopold had this, this long view, you know, and this love of the wild places and the natural environment. But that's not what he was encountering there on this little farm. And his decision to, to do what he could, and he and his family started the process of of bringing the land back to health and, uh, and the kinds of things that he thought about. Um, for those who are listening who have not read the Sand County Almanac yet, um, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful book, and it has become you know, one of those iconic books that really started people thinking about our relationship, you know, uh, human beings, our relationship uh, to the natural world. Um, you know, like you... The first time I read it, I was I was touched by it. But every time I continue to revisit, and I revisit it again and read it again um, before our interview, and uh, I'm making new notes in the margins. So I think it's uh, an incredibly um, I don't know contemporary book, even though it was written. And when was the first publication? Yeah. So uh, Carrie, I love uh, what you're bringing uh, up there. The first 
publication was 1949, yeah. and yeah. there's such a great backstory. I, probably to most uh, kind of great works of art, right? There are these backstories, but Leopold, in fact, died the year before it was published. Yeah. He had been writing that, that that manuscript for 13 years, been rejected numerous times. Only one week before his death had he finally gotten word from Oxford University Press that they would publish his manuscript. Uh, his working title was Great Possessions, so there's a story about how the, the title even changed. He never even knew the title of Sand County Almanac. Uh, but uh, it, nevertheless, he persisted. Uh, he kept working, and then his students and family did the final editing, and the book came out a year after his death to pretty good reviews, um, but for many decades, it was really, I don't know if a cult classic is the right way to say it, but mm -hmm. if you were in forestry mm -hmm. or wildlife, you knew Aldo Leopold and, yeah. and you read him. But he was not known in a popular way or to a bigger, broader, more general audience. Uh, his good fortune was Earth Day in 1970. Mm -hmm. And the book had just been released in paperback and here was a population looking for good writing about our relationship to the natural world. And there was not that much competition at that time. And yeah. so people got introduced to San County Almanac and you could just see sales and citations spike in 1970 and, and continue in this kind of exponential rise since then. But I think, Carrie, the other reason, well, there's a couple reasons I believe the book has this lasting legacy. Uh, one is that uh, it's just great writing. I yeah. mean, it, it really is. Uh, he, he worked hard on his writing, and he was a writer and considered himself and worked to, to be a writer, and that shows. Uh, but the other aspect is that it continues to be this great metaphor for the world has all these big problems that yeah. we all know about and are working on. Mm -hmm. And, and so he articulates those, and yet he also documents what he does in a very day-to-day, -day, in a kind of unremarkable fashion. He plants a tree, and then you plant another tree. And, you know, two trees, what difference does two trees make? Well, over time, it becomes 200 trees and 2,000 trees, and it, it kind of just shows this uh, impact that one individual, one family can have when you hold in balance these bigger challenges with what you can do yourself. And so I think Leopold and his story, as he puts it together, that might not even be totally apparent to the reader, and yet I think it is, uh, I think that's what carries him forward today is that um, he, he just helps us we're him. I mean, that's that's a really, yeah. you know, we all are kind of on the same journey. And and you can envision yourself doing the same things he and his family were doing on that farm. You know, maybe it's a, a, a pollinator plant on your patio or mm -hmm. in your window box. Like, we, there's all things we can do that are little, and yet they make all the difference in the world. Yeah, I, I want to underscore that, that point. I'm, and I'm thinking at the moment of a song that Carrie has that I love called Stones in the River. Is that its title? It's about casting, yeah. keep casting stones in the river. You know, it's only one stone. It doesn't visibly change the river, but over time, those the acts of that sort add up and do create change. I, I was really, really struck in rereading Sand County Almanac by the fact that <clears throat> Leopold 
Clinton um, was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. He had a full-time job. He had a lot of responsibilities. He had, what, five, five children and was a great family man um, in every respect. He and his wife had a wonderful marriage uh, and close working relationship. And, and what he was able to do on this rundown farm happened mostly, I guess, on weekends and then what during the summer months when he wasn't actively in, in the classroom and so forth or having to do academic committees. So it was a limited amount of time. And I know that I'm one of those people, and I'm sure there are millions of us, who look at massive problems like environmentalism and conservation mm -hmm. and say, oh, man, this is killing me. I'd really like to do something about it, but I just don't have the time. Uh, we don't even get as far as planting one tree and then another. And, and Leopold had to make a drive on not-so-good roads with not-so-good vehicles that must have taken more than an hour to get from Madison to Baraboo, Wisconsin. I, I'd love to hear you expand just a little more, buddy, on this this wonderful trope that you just put out, that we we are Aldo Leopold, Aldo Leopold is us, and, and mm -hmm. how you've seen that working out in people's lives, because I think that really touches on a dilemma or, or a, a, a kind of blockage that a lot of folks have in relation to these big issues. Well, yeah, uh, uh, and I think that plays out in a couple of different ways. Uh, again, as a communicator, as a writer, uh, you know, those those who, who share their thoughts with the world and they persist are often those that just are articulating things we feel, but the average person can't. <laughs> can't say with such eloquence and clarity. Um, so I think that, you know, people that read the book and they're like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, that's exactly how I want to look at the woods or experience the natural world. But then uh, again, and he, and he sets up the book to take the reader on this journey. The, the first portion of the book is just month by month. What do you see? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. uh, and so again, we can all uh, even if we're in downtown Chicago, you know, there's 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 trees there. You can see the the fall foliage color. Um, and so he provides that kind of point of access that wherever you are, there's something to look at and to, to just understand the world around you. It may be the built environment as much as the natural environment. And then the second is to then diagnose, well, what am I seeing? What, what, what is working here? What's not working? Yeah. And then the third part is really, if I care about these things, what is, it that, what is my own personal challenge to think about and step up into? And how do I contribute to a community that cares about these things? And so I, I think, and, and he picks these, I think, examples, especially in the first part of the book, that... Uh, especially if you're in the upper Midwest, you, you can kind of relate to enough that, that you find yourself mentally walking through the woods or, or again, in a city park. And, and, but then also to not set the bar so high uh, and that, that you, know, the, you can't take the second step until you take the first step. And I, I think that's also what his model is, is that you care, uh, you, know, you learn about the world, you then care about it, and then you take action. And that's going to have to be customized for wherever you are and whatever that looks like. And I would say, you know, that's been the great, uh, real, amazing pleasure and, and, and honor for myself is to 
see all these people who come to us because they've been inspired uh, and kind of motivated by Leopold's work and they bring their own story and they're each one is different, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> whether they're from Utah or New England or Alaska, but, you know, they have their own Sand County story about uh, what got them motivated, where they're at, what they're doing, uh, how at times it feels inadequate, but yet what else can they do, but what they can do. And uh, in Leopold's, um, I think it's the November essay, Axe in Hand, he talks about vocations and avocations. And again, I think this was his brilliance. Like he just understood everybody has life to deal with. And so, you know, it's all about our choosing of, of where we invest time and energy. And and if you're a, a banker or a lawyer or, uh, you know, somebody who makes their living uh, in, in ways that aren't directly connected to the natural world, Parker, to your point, you got weekends, you got evenings, you know, uh, Go, go to the Boundary Waters for two weeks. Uh, you know, find your access points and your opportunities to contribute. And I think he just believed really strongly that in that positive feedback loop. When you do that, you'll want more and, and you'll do more. But it's that first step of getting started. Yeah, and he, I, I thought it was really wonderful how the book is set up. You were talking about these three different sections. And the first section being really these short little essays month by month, of his encounter with the natural world. And some of them are very simple. And uh, naming things, you know, what this particular flower is, um, uh, the name of a bird. You know, once I know it's a sparrow, I see more sparrows. Once I know that flash of red is a cardinal, ah, I kind of thrill to seeing a a cardinal at at the bird feeder here at my house. So he's very you know, human size. And I think right now, many of our problems uh, with the environment seem so large. They seem, you just can't get your arms around them. It's so large. But Leopold does something that I think is so powerful in that brings it back to human size. Here's my relationship. Uh, This is how I can encounter the natural world. And then the small things he would do each day in those first very lovely essays. He's a wonderful writer. And so what is that one thing? Well, I'm learning the name of the sparrow. Mm -hmm. I'm planting a lilac bush or a pollinator this springtime. He he really makes it human size. And the the delight. Mm -hmm. He really delights in the natural world. And I, I love that because sometimes, again, it's so big and it's so important and the problems uh, we face are, are hard. But I love the delight that, and, and, and that, that's my dog delighting in a squirrel. That's right. That's window. right. Speaking of, yeah. <laughs> well, and Carrie, I love that you use that term delight. You know, the opening uh, salvo of the book is these essays are the delights and dilemmas of one who cannot live without wild things. And the, the, the dilemmas only matter to the extent that you delight in them, right? We can only care about things that we know about, or we can only take action uh, on behalf of things that we know about and care about and understand. And um, I, I love the way you described that, because I, I think that's very much 
where it started for him was just, you know, I mean, and this goes back, his first pair of binoculars were opera glasses because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. binoculars didn't even exist when he was growing up. And so any, any tools that he could have to look and see and understand the natural world uh, were, were really important and valuable to him. I, th- I think this, uh, just to add a thought to this last little round of discussion, it seems to me that this links into something that Carrie and I and a lot of other people, I'm sure you too, buddy, have to say about hope. So many people these days saying these problems seem hopeless or I'm without hope and feeling down and out about you know being a good citizen or doing anything uh, that might take us toward a better future. Well, I think the answer to that is hope is not an attitude. Hope is an action. And if you're feeling hopeless, it's probably because you haven't acted. You haven't gone out and planted a tree. You, you haven't gone out and planted a lilac bush or whatever it may be that's within your reach in those spare moments or hours that you may have given all the other demands of your life. So I think this, this constant um, subtext that runs through Leopold's work about actions that can be taken within the confines of busy lives is really about hope. And God knows we need hope in relation to environmentalism, ecological restoration, conservation, climate change, and all the rest, because a lot of folks are talking about climate despair, um, ecological despair, as one of the great undermining factors of our times. Yeah, you know, Leopold even has been cited, um, well, he's given credit for a lot of different initiatives or sectors in the environmental movement, if you will. Uh, He's often recognized as the father of the wilderness idea and wilderness movement, sustainable agriculture. There was a, there's a sustainable agriculture center named after him, environmental ethics, uh, environmental history, uh, but also ecological grief. And, you know, it cites back to a little passage that he had in the book Round River uh, that goes, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. And so it's, you know, this idea that, that when you know what's happening out there, you can't help but but have this this grief and this pain. And yet uh, I love the concept of hope. And one of the last letters that he wrote to a colleague before Leopold's untimely death in 1948, uh, he penned this phrase that I often use in presentations, though the situation is hopeless, it should not prevent us from doing our best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, again, what's the antidote to, to despair and grief? Well, it's action. As you said, Parker, it's, it's doing something. Otherwise, we lose ourselves in the hopelessness. And, and so having, holding on to that hope and, um, and, and making it an action, though, not, you know, not just a, uh, a feeling or uh, a situation, uh, hope has to be grounded in in doing our best and, and doing what we can to make a difference out there. I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation in that, you know, climate grief is very real and acknowledging it. This is, this is something that we're facing right now. I'm old enough at this point 
that the world I grew up with, I will most likely not see again. It most likely will not return in my lifetime. And that's heartbreaking to me in terms of climate stability. And yet, it's not about just effectiveness, like making, you know, the tree I plant today, the bird I delight in today, you know, my relationship and my actions every day for the better world. It's not so much about immediate effectiveness, but about long-term faithfulness. You know, and when I hear about the farm and what it looks like now, Leopold did not see that farm and the return of the health of the land, and he did it anyways. And so every time I plant something, I, I work at a farm with some friends, you know, a couple times a week. So, And uh, I don't know, I just find that image of, of these places that have been restored. This farm had been overworked, and after many, many years of, of sustainable farming techniques, you can basically p- put a shovel in the ground, and it's like chocolate. You know, it's like, it's the most healthy, beautiful soil, and you just want to put your hands in it and plant something in it. But it wasn't like that when she started farming that that piece of land years ago. It does happen. It does change. Um, and it, that idea of faithfulness in action. And, and Leopold didn't, didn't even live to see the success of his book, you know, let alone the... Well, that, that's what I wanted to just say. I mean, and, and, you know, Carrie, I love the imagery that, that you conjure up with that faithfulness and, and planting in the soil. I mean, it's, it, it, it speaks to the resilience of the earth and, and of us, you know, as, as people too. And so Parker... Yeah, Leopold didn't even see his book published. He didn't see the trees that he planted grow above his head, let alone be used to build uh, two of his children's homes and and the Leopold Center. Uh, But he also didn't see his children, uh, who had this experience, go on to be five uh, important and influential scientists and conservationists. And Mm -hmm. so it's that... You know, we are investing in things we're we're not going to see the return on, and yet how powerful and, and impactful can it be even still for us while we're doing it? And I, I, think, I think there's also something worth saying here before we move on to another topic. There's so many important topics with, with this force field. And that is that while he didn't see the success of his book and he, he didn't know the outcome of his efforts at conservation and restoration, there's one thing he knew for sure. He was living the life that he was called to live, that he felt called to live. He was following his true north on the compass of of his his own ethic, the land ethic being something that he's famous for and that we'll be talking about in a little bit here. So that when we do these things, the takeaway for me is we're, we're not trying only to create something out there. We're creating something in here. We're creating a life that brings us fulfillment, a sense of satisfaction. And if, if, if we could teach young people early on that that's what it's all about, that if, if, you're, if you're building a life of true human fulfillment, you're also very likely contributing something important to the common good. Um, and I think that's something that could surely be said about Leopold's life. I mean, everything I know about him suggests that he was 
a fulfilled human being. Well said. Well, and I think, too, there are some interesting things about the book. And I think, Parker, you were going to ask, in the 75th anniversary edition, it has a really beautiful introduction by the author, Barbara Kingsolver, who was on our program. Actually, Parker, you had some. You were telling me that that introduction had, had really moved you. Well, it, it did very much. And, Buddy, I'd love to have your comment on this. One of the points that Barbara Kingsolver makes about Aldo Leopold's work that I found <clears throat> most encouraging was she said, he talks about these issues in a language that unites people rather than divides people. He yes. talks about these issues. He, after all, was a hunter as well as a conservationist and an environmentalist. So he talks about these issues in a way that, that doesn't lead hunters to say, this is just liberal elite woo-woo stuff, go away, we like hunting. And, he, and it doesn't lead uh, us liberal elite woo-woo types like me to uh, disparage people who hunt either. He had a keen sense in his essay about learning to think like a mountain about the need for predators in, in, in ecosystems that, who's, who serve the well-being of the totality. Uh, let's not kill all the wolves because the wolves have a role in the ecosystem and if we learn to think like mountains, we will understand. So I'd, I'd love your comment on that. If you have found in your experience that it's that this is that Leopold offers us a language or a set of experiences that are really bridge building, rather than the than building walls. Yeah, I mean the way we describe it, Parker. I, I love how you picked up on that, and and how Barbara kind of explained that, and and. And use Leopold as this figure that that can kind of reach across the aisle or or build bridges. We talk about Leopold providing this big tent of conservation, and that the walls are up, and so it's come one, come all. And I, I think we see that in our visitors. You know, they they it's they're Republican, they're Democrats, they're from, from cities, they're from farms. Uh, they're they're big wilderness folks. They're city wild folks. Um, but he, he he and and maybe he was fortunate. He wrote at a time when there wasn't so much division, and so it feels more authentic that he's um, kind of just talking about that that shared interest in the landscape. But I also think he worked pretty hard, and you know that's why he he builds the book and the journey and has these little metaphors and vignettes and, and use kind of mechanical references and economic references and religious references. I mean, he's, you know, kind of using every tool at his device to find point of entree with the reader and say, yeah, we're trying to see the world the same way. Or, you know, we're, we have a shared cause and concern about uh, what keeps the world healthy. And so, and I think, again, it's that he, he really... Uh, envisions humanity in this shared cause of, of building an ethic of care for people and for places. And so we're all included in that. And so we all get to go along for the ride. But I, I think that is right. And I think that's also one of the reasons the book and his writing ha has lasted and persisted is because uh, it, it he, you know, he worked hard to be universal in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, 
where this takes place in the book is a very rural area. It was a very rural area then, and it's still a rural, more rural area now. And so, um, again, bridging that that um, uh, place uh, between the urban and the rural, which um, we're finding in recent years has been kind of exploited politically. And uh, and I really did appreciate um, Barbara's picking up on that and also your language now about, um, you know, that that it's about our shared interest um, in, in the natural world, in our relationship to the natural world. Um, Leopold also talked about um, that it has to be more than just economics, but to not discount the economic situations that do come up um, with land management and land ethic. Um, but first starting with this idea that we're not living off the land, we're living with the land. Very important. Yeah, I mean, that's his fundamental premise. You know, when we see land as a community to which we belong, yes. we may begin to use it with love and respect. And if we don't get to what you just said, Carrie, that that we're in this together, uh, you know, uh, and if we got to expand our concept of community to include the flora and fauna uh, and give them the same ethical care and consideration we might our friends and family, then the economics of the day are always going to be at cross purposes with what we really need to be healthy um, as, a, as individuals and as communities. And so I think he, you know, he had this very attuned sense of, of economics and what they could do for us and, and what their limitations were um, be, because there are so many value-laden aspects about uh, our economic systems that most of us, you know, just are not attuned to. And, and I think he was also one of the really early voices to just critique consumerism and, and, you know, the, that we can just kind of buy our way to happiness uh, and that we have to really rethink and reground ourselves and what's important and, and where we get real delights from. Yeah, he actually says at one point, he makes a very radical statement. He said, I, he, he basically implies, I'd give up television if I could see more geese fly, you know, on, on migration. <laughs> Which is a wonderful little prod to the contemporary consciousness. You know, he works, as you well know, buddy, you know it better than anybody I've ever talked with, he works with this notion of a land ethic for which he became famous, which at the core of which is this notion that you and Carrie were just exploring of the land as a community to which we belong, of which we are a member. Uh, reminds me of Wendell Berry talking about the Port William membership uh, by which he meant not only the, the people in this fictional town of his, but also the land and and how they worked it and how they collaborated with it. Um, he says another really interesting thing about the land ethic that I'd love to hear you talk more about, if I have this correct. He says, it's not something that can be written down, that, that the land ethic has to be lived it, it can't be uh, simply put on a page or, or in a book or in a code of conduct. 
which, which is where I think we end up with a lot of the big problems of our society. We're, we're, all, we're waiting for someone to give us the rules, right? Um, and, but th- th- these are things that are these are things that are too big, too fundamental to human existence, to the to quality of life, to, to be encapsulated in twelve convenient points: uh, "Thou shalt" or "Thou shalt not." It's it's really about how we invest ourselves in the living of our own lives, um, not only for ourselves but for the common wheel. And, and I'd, I'd love to do some exploration around that set of notions. Yeah, well, and of course, I got to point out, I uh, referenced that Leopold had been rejected several times before Oxford Press agreed to publish his book. And most of the critiques were around those that last section of the book, the philosophical essays. They were like, there's no readership for this. Nobody wants to hear these esoteric uh, kind of arguments about our relationship to the natural world. Let's just focus on these little nature vignettes at the, the first part of the book. And and Leopold would not compromise his vision. He knew that this was the message that was important, right? The, the first portions are only to get you introduced, delighted, uh, so that the, your dilemmas can lead you to the right cause of action. So he persisted. Oxford University Press ultimately uh, saw the potential there. The book has now been translated into 15 different languages, uh, and it's because of this section, the land ethics section. And you're absolutely right. I mean, he closes the book say, stating that um, nothing so important as an ethic is ever written. It evolves in the minds of a thinking community. And so this also isn't static. Like what made sense in 1948 wasn't what made sense in 1970 and isn't what makes sense in 2024. And so again, his brilliance is that he invites us all in. We're, we're all part of it. We, you know, we're part of the thinking community. I mean, the conversations that you two host here, this is, this is the fodder for where we think through um, how we relate to one another in the natural world. And, and Leopold said, bring it on. It, it wasn't, you know, this, this nice, uh, steps one, two, three, four, five. Um, yeah. As you said, Parker, it's 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 too important to be boiled down to that. And he entrusted in the reader and in society uh, to step into and up to that challenge of of recognizing what it's going to take to live a sustainable world. So an awful lot depends on the quality of the container within which we have these conversations. It seems to me, or the nature of the spaces that host these conversations to loop back to something we were saying earlier, when the container or the space uh, is sort of grounded in competition and who's going to win the debate, uh, you, you simply can't have a conversation that will fulfill Leopold's vision of an evolving communal ethic. It has to be much more collaborative than that. It has to be rooted in a sense of there is a common good, and we each have to find a way to serve the common good, you know, while also sustaining, maintaining our, our own lives. And those, those are not incompatible goals, but we don't have many containers or many spaces, wouldn't it be, you know, that have that quality to them? Um, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if more of our voluntary associations, our religious communities, our, 
our neighborhood organizations, um, et cetera, et cetera, across this land, sort of majored in creating containers that would host um, a really generative conversation, not only about the land ethic, but about all the other evolving community ethics that we that we need. I was I was really struck by something that you said earlier, buddy, about how um, to 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 have this knowledge about what's going on in the natural world and how did you put that and not act on it? Um, you know, is is to is to live in in a wounded what I remember is a wounded manner. I don't know if I'm quoting you properly. But that was the gist of it for me, that there's a world of hurt in knowing something real that's actually happening and not doing anything about it. And, and I thought, well, the same is true of knowing about the history of race in this country. The same is true about knowing the threats to democracy in this country. I think this was the conversation where we were talking about the grief that's on the other side. That was it, the grief, not just yeah. not the woundedness yeah. or the bloodiness, but the grief that's on the other side of not doing anything about it. So this is a huge theme. Um, and if uh, this, this notion of creating spaces and containers where we can have a, a generative communal conversation about things that we need to be working on for our survival as a species and every species. So well said, Parker. I, I, you, you got another book right there, I think, or, or we need to all go back to some of your writing as, as some of those containers. But it, it is, that is, it's not the challenge of today. It's the challenge of every day, right? Back probably yeah. to the beginning of time. How do we relate to one another? How do we relate to the world around us? How do we center ourselves outside of ourselves? I think that's the first mm -hmm. step, right? It's just, it's not all about us, uh, about me. And when I can do that, then that helps open up that I can learn from others, I can listen to others, that, 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 that conversation gets so much richer. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's a little bit more challenged in the modern era, modern day, because technology again is is working against us. That's back to Leopold. I think that's one of the things that, uh, and I like the way you described him, Parker. Is that he, he again? He wasn't perfect, right? I mean, he writes like uh, he writes an essay where he's self-reflective about having five children, though you know, uh, population can be a problem, and so. You know, he's just very attuned to um, that that everything's not going to be perfect. Everything's not going to be right, but that should not prevent us from doing our best. And our best gets better every day we listen and learn more from others and, and can step more uh, kind of powerfully and, and um, confidently without being, uh, you know, overconfident uh, into, into positivity. And so... Um, it just, and unfortunately, there just aren't enough containers to have those conversations now. And, and uh, that's, again, why it's a real pleasure to be with you two and to be part of uh, the conversation that can can add depth and, and uh, discernment to where we're at and where we're going. And how important that is. You know, um, 
part of Leopold's legacy is is that he he encourages it. You know, find where um, the delight, uh, find where we relate. Also, you know, do that soul searching of knowing that it's not all about me. You know, too. You know, where do where do I interact uh, with the land and the landscape and individually, but also to the whole community uh, with a certain kind of ethic to it. Yeah, one thing I'd like to just add, Carrie, uh, in this spirit, because, you know, at times the Leopold Foundation gets kind of (laughs) Leopold-centric, understandably so. But one of the things that we do try to do is amplify other voices, contemporary authors and and contemporary thinkers and doers, uh, to show that this work is still evolving, that that we're still figuring out where we're at and where we're going, and others are helping us articulate that and to to improve our ecological restoration science. And so, uh, you know, those that, that want to be part of the conversation, I, I would encourage you to to visit the Leopold Foundation website and and be part of the Leopold community because we that's one of the things we try to do. Uh, voices like Drew Lanneman or Robin Wall Kimmer or Lorette Savoy, yes, yes. Uh, Ben Goldfarb. There, there's just, I mean, there are so many wonderful writers out there right now that are helping us. Or our mutual friend, Scott Russell Sanders. Scott Russell Sanders, one of the, I think, one of the most important conservation voices and writers. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the other hopefulness is to find these other individuals out there today that, that uh, we're living and breathing and drinking with uh, and, to, and to listen and learn from them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you lifted that up, buddy, because I was thinking that the Aldo Leopold Foundation and Center themselves are doing a wonderful job at, at hosting the kinds of conversations we need. I've as, as you've said, I've been there. I've seen the diversity of folks who come your way. I've been on your website quite a bit, and I urge everybody who's listening to this to go to the Aldo Leopold Foundation website and to check out the 56-minute film uh, called Green Fire, um, which tells the, the Leopold story in a wonderful, wonderful way. I found it very moving and also very educational. And by the way, that story reaches far beyond Baraboo, Wisconsin, uh, into New Mexico, the Gila wilderness, which is is really one of Leopold's gifts to the world, Um, overseas in a a variety of vectors, etc., etc., etc. It's it's a portable feast, and it's... (laughs) It has been enjoyed in many places around the globe. So I want to urge people to check out the work you guys are doing out there. And in March, don't you have, I, I was on your website too, and I just, it's, it's a wonderful website, but also you have an annual kind of Leopold week, right? And that, and there's all, and it's online. And so people who don't live where going to visit the center is, is an easy, you know, close by or easy to do, uh, can still hear some of these incredible authors and speakers and ideas being talked about contempt, you know, right now and, and how they apply right now. Um, and it's in, is it in March, I believe? It is, yeah, the first week of March. Um, and 
uh, this year it's March 1st through the 8th, but every, it's annually the first week in March. And this was, uh, there, there were this little community in Wisconsin in the early spring when you want to be outside, but the weather doesn't really want you to be outside. Uh, they started coming together. It started as coffee uh, club and they read a Sand County Almanac aloud to one another. And they said, you know, wow, this this is a really, it comes to life when I hear you read this passage. And so the next year, they booked the Lodi Public Library and they did the first uh, Leopold weekend. And this kind of grew. And we had at one point 40 communities across the state and some other states doing events on this first uh, weekend in March. And then COVID hit. And, and these were very public gatherings, right? In the basement of a library or in the civic center. Uh, and we just heard from people like, look, we still want this conversation to go on. And, and the Leopold Foundation had very intentionally not done a Leopold Weekend event because um, we, we wanted this organic nature out yeah. there. And so we decided during COVID to do a virtual Leopold Week and we brought in speakers um, and it was so popular that we've continued it. And so, uh, this year we'll have Ed Young, the, the author of an immense world that's speaking very much about the things we've talked about today. Diane Wilson has a book called the seed saver. We have authors or contributors from a new book called first and wildest that is all about the Gila wilderness and different perspectives, uh, about that special place. And Scott Russell Sanders was one of our speakers last year. We had over five, we've had almost 7,500 people participate uh, last year. And so it really is this kind of fun coming together of, of a conversation about where we're at and where we're going, listening and learning to, to new thinkers and doers. And, you know, at first I thought, well, this, this virtual thing is going to get a little old, but it's amazing the, the rich commentary and remarks and the chat function and, and people that know each other reconnecting and, and sharing thoughts and perspectives and questions. And so uh, uh, we're excited for another uh, fun year and, and thoughtful speakers. Uh, but it it lets anybody, we had last year people from 24 different countries come together over that week. And it, it really is this kind of big tent of everybody's welcome. Come in and be part of the conversation. Yeah, it's really it's really good stuff. I participated in that last last year, and I enjoyed it so much. I'll be back this year, if we can get through this miserable Wisconsin winter. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's zero degrees out right now, and so I'm a little less romantic about nature than I sometimes am. But <laughs> I, I know we'll do fine. It's been such a joy to talk with you, buddy, um, and I know we're beginning to run out of time for this wonderful, wonderful conversation, which I know Carrie and I are so very grateful for. So I want to ask you the, the last question, which we ask all of our guests to reflect a bit on, and that, that is, what's on Buddy Huffaker's growing edge? And if there's any more on the growing edge of the Aldo Leopold Foundation itself, We'd love to hear about that too, but both both personally and uh, organizationally, what's on your growing edge? Well, I think uh, again, why it was so fun to to be able to be with you two today is we talk uh, about growing an ethic of care for all people and places, and so 
I think that our, our work continues right along with you and the growing edge. It's about growing awareness, growing care and concern. And we're really excited about the 75th anniversary to just give us this moment in time to kind of ask people to pause for breath to take Leopold's line out of the Good Oak essay and stop and reflect and, and either for the first time pick up the book or pick up the book again for the second or 20th time and um, you know help us think about how Leopold's legacy in the land ethic continues to inform and inspire this ethic of care and uh, we'd love it if people would invite us to their homes or their community to, to, to convene these conversations uh, just like we've done today and uh, again use Leopold as a springboard to hear from so many other talented voices today because I think that's the exciting part is you know not of all of our history is is um, flattering uh, so we have to find these individuals in these moments to create some continuity of care and concern and uh, and build on them take what's what works and throw out what doesn't uh, but we got to get more people involved and I, I think that's the work of the Leopold Foundation is just continuing that and been at it 27 years I I hope to. It's the 75th anniversary. I hope to be around for the hundredth. <laughs> I ha, I ha, think I think you will be. I mean, you you've got that green fire burning in you, man. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Nobody's going to put it out. <laughs> thank you so much for being with thank us, you, buddy. buddy. It's been great. Well, thank you too, and carry on. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation for Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because she just inspires me on a daily level.